How about we pray? Father God, we want to thank you so much for the book of Judges. Uh, in particular, we pray that by your Spirit right now, you may be with us. You may help us to understand the story of Deborah and Barak. Help us, Lord, to understand what it means, but then also think through how it applies to us. Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious God that is in complete control through the most messy of circumstances and that you respond to your people's cry for help. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that you help us to grow in our affection and love for Jesus, our ultimate Savior, and help us, Lord, not just to watch him, but also follow him all our days. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, six years ago, I went on a holiday to America, and specifically, I uh, went with my wife, and uh, we went to uh, Los Angeles for a few days. And when we were in Los Angeles, we decided to go see an ice hockey game. And what we saw was a playoff game between the LA um, Kings and the San Jose Sharks. And so it was being played at the Staples Center, which is the LA Kings' home ground. And so when we went there and we walked into uh, the arena, there was about 90% of the people were LA Kings fans. So they're wearing LA Kings jerseys, which I think were purple off memory and had like a crown on it. Uh, and the whole entire stadium was just shouting out, Sharks suck, Sharks suck. Now that was their opposition, the San Jose Sharks. Now, I followed the San Jose Sharks uh, because I used to play them on PlayStation. And so I was like really, you know, I was, I was intimidated. I was afraid. And I was like, what's going to happen here? And so, uh, I don't know, somehow we got good seats. And so as I was approaching near the ice hockey rink, I was like, man, this is going to be really bad. Like, I don't know if I want to be here. This is scary. And then all of a sudden, about 10 minutes before the game begins, this family came and this young boy was part of the family and he came and he sat right next to me and this young boy was dressed from head to toe in San Jose Sharks gear. And so I was like, yes, my man, my buddy, we're on a team. And we bonded straight away as I shared with him how big of a fan I was of the Sharks, quite clearly, and how I didn't have a jersey on or anything. Um, and then what we did is for the rest of the game, we cheered on our team. And so when our team came out, we cheered while everyone else booed. When the LA Kings came on, we booed as everyone else cheered. And, and then when as the game began, we started to cheer on our team. And we thought that we were part of our team, that we were playing the game. And so when one of the Sharks guys got hit, not only did we see and hear the thud, we felt the thud. You know, and when we saw them gliding across the ice, we thought we were gliding across the ice. You know, and when they scored, and, when, and then when they, and they celebrated, we celebrated as if we scored. And at one point in time, when the puck flew up throughout the ring and came down towards us, and I caught the puck, we looked at it, and we went, yeah, we're part of this team. And then when our team won 6-3 and dominated the Kings... We celebrated as if we had won the match. But here's the thing, right? As you know, we didn't play the match. We were spectators. We weren't actually players. You see, like we didn't go home that night with black eyes, with, with bruises, with sore muscles. No, we didn't at all. You know, we weren't on the rink actually, you know, doing the thing. Instead, we were sitting comfortably on our seats eating popcorn as spectators of the game. You see, tonight we're going to look at the story, obviously, of Deborah and Barak. And what we're going to learn from this is actually that God wants His people to get in the game. That God wants His people to get in the game, to be a part of His mission, to be part of His plan, to be part of His game. And this is the unfortunate truth, is as Christians, and I'm speaking of myself here at times, is too often we can be spectators who sit on the sidelines rather than players who actually play an active part in the game. 
And see, sometimes we can leave church, like I left the Staples Arena, be like, oh, that was awesome, what a good night, and then don't even think about what actually God wants of you from the rest of the week. You think about your own life, your own goals, your own plans, rather than what's God's plan, what's God's mission, and how do you bring Him glory? And so with that problem in mind, tonight let's look at this narrative, let's look at this story of Deborah and Barak, and let's learn from them and learn how God wants us to get in the game. Now, before I read, reread out for us, actually, verses 1 to 3, so we get our heads in the narrative of chapter 4, uh, I need to explain something. And so, as most of you know, I have two sons, Elijah and Isaac, uh, which I say almost every week. And Isaac, my youngest, he has two loves at the moment. And the two loves are this. Number one, he loves The Rock, the, the wrestler The Rock. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a big deal these days. And he loves wrestling and pretending that he is The Rock. But then he also loves singing two songs at the moment. And the two songs are from the movie Moana, and the two songs are You're Welcome and uh, Shiny. And I kid you not, it literally like, was the best day of his life when I showed a YouTube clip where like, actually Moe is the rock, uh, and he sings the song You're Welcome, uh, and that just blew his mind. Uh, and this week, uh, I was actually fortunate enough to be able to sit down and watch the movie Moana with Isaac for the first time. And what I was blown away by this movie was just like how well they transitioned from the story into song. Right? So like before you know it, you're like clapping, you're bouncing, you're like singing, you're welcome, and like you're just getting involved in it. And a similar thing actually happens here in Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5. You see, Judges chapter 4 is the narrative, it's a story, while Judges chapter 5 is a song. Okay? Now tonight, we're not going to sing, we're not going to uh, clap together and dance together about Judges chapter 5. I'd love to, but we don't have time. And so I just want to give you a heads up that what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look through the narrative in Judges chapter 4, but on occasions I'm going to pull apart or pull together some of the lyrics from Judges chapter 5, which helps us understand the story. And so keep that in mind. And as we do that, let's have a look at verses 1 to 3 again and get ourselves back into the story. And so what does it say? Verse 1, let me see if I can read these names correctly this time. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Caesar, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagoyim, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. So these are the bad guys, right? We're at the beginning of the story. This is the bad king, and this is his bad commander, okay? And in particular, this commander is a bad dude, like Sisera. okay? He is the commander of the Canaanite army, and they have 900 iron chariots, these are like the modern-day tanks, okay? This is, this is technology as well that the Israelites did not have. And so, fair enough, the Israelites were petrified of this commander of Sisera. But it's also important to understand that not only was he a tough military leader, but he also, have a very, he also had a very low view of women. You see, as you actually learn this in Judges chapter 5, but like most unfortunate Canaanite rulers... He was prone to steal women, rape women, and enslave them after their victories. And so, what happens after the Israelites cry out for the Lord's help? Well, God sends a deliverer. And whenever we see that in Judges, we should be thinking, oh, who's He going to send? Is He going to send someone like Othniel, you know, the warrior? Or is He going to send someone like Ehud, the sneaky left-handed assassin? You know, he's a bit sinister, like all people were left-handed. Well, no, let's look at verse 4. Now Deborah, the prophet, the wife of Labadoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah. This time, God raises up a prophetess. He raises up a woman. 
Now, if you're not too sure what a prophet or a prophetess is, it's someone who spoke, spoke the words of God to the people of God on God's behalf. And did you notice where she did this? She did this under the palm of Deborah. Now, look, just in case you haven't learned this lesson in life, uh, people who are important have places named after them. Okay, so if you, don't, if you can't think of any palms that are named after you, it's because you're not that important, but Deborah is. And women in particular take note of this, that Deborah is a woman and that she's married and that she is leading Israel at a terrible time in their history. I want you to take note in particular as we go through Judges chapter 4, the contrast between Sisera's view of women and God's view of women. And so let's look at verse 6. So Deborah sent for Barak and said to him, she prophesies, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men, and I'll lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops to the Kishon River, and I'll give him into your hands. So Deborah basically says to Barak, he says, Barak, go. God wants you to go defeat Sisera and his army. Here is the game plan. This is what God wants you to do. Go, God will be with you. And now before we look at Barak's response, it's important you understand what she's asking of Barak. You see, like I said before, is that Sisera was a great military commander, and he had a great army. He had these 900 chariots, and Barak, he had 10,000 troops, which seems like a lot, but 10,000 is nowhere near enough to overcome this commander and army. And so he responds, I guess the way we would respond, in verse 8. He says, well, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. You know, surely you can see the passivity of Barak and the lack of his faith in God and his power. Now, why does he say, Deborah, if, I, if you go, I'll go? I think maybe he's thinking, oh, he's a coward. He doesn't want to say, no, I don't want to go. That will look weak. So instead, he thinks, oh, I know, Deborah definitely wouldn't come with me. So he goes, all right, Deborah, if you come, then I'll go. And how does Deborah respond? In faith, look at verse 9. She says, certainly I'll go with you. That because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. You see, unlike Barak, Deborah has radical faith in God. Deborah has radical faith in God. And that brings me to lesson number one from this story, that following God requires radical faith, that following God requires radical faith. You see, in many ways, what God was asking here was similar to David versus Goliath. From a human point of view, this battle was insane. Like Barak's captains, his soldiers, they would have been saying, this plan is ludicrous, it's suicidal. But here's the thing, is that God wanted him to have faith in God's power. And a similar thing happens to us today. You know, God might not want us to fight impossible military battles, but He does want us to take radical steps of faith. He does want us to be risk-taking disciples of Christ who live in a world who doesn't love Jesus and live counter-cultural lives. And so, church, may we learn this lesson that following God requires radical faith. In particular, may we not fall for the lie that, you know, people say that God wouldn't get you to do things that are outside your comfort zone. As David Platt says in his book, Radical, which I recommend to anyone, he says this, he says, Radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort, not health, not wealth and not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all these things. But in the end, such risk finds its reward in Christ, and He is more than enough for us. Like, think of the words of Jesus, and He says, if you want to find your life, I mean, if you, want to, if you want to keep your life, you'll lose it, but if you want to lose your life, you'll save it. 
Think of how he says in terms of pick up your cross and follow him. You see, church, there's a reason why God tells us that we need the Holy Spirit, that we need the power of prayer. Because following Jesus is a radical thing. Following God is risky business. And so look, the next time that God puts something crazy on your heart compared to the world around you, and the next time the world is trying to tell you that that's just, that's just crazy, that's dumb, don't do that. Remember that God asks of you and desires that you have radical faith in Him. And so when the Holy Spirit is convincing, is convicting you to go share the gospel with someone and you're feeling anxious, or the next time that the Holy Spirit is convicting you to have that difficult conversation with that brother or sister that you haven't reconciled with and you're feeling nervous, or the next time that the Holy Spirit is confessing to you to confess and come clean with a sin that you need to go tell someone about and you're feeling ashamed. Remember this lesson, that following God requires radical faith. It requires radical faith. But lesson number two that we can learn, which is an important one, is this, is that we are masters at making up excuses. We are masters at making up excuses. Uh, for the last few months, as I've probably mentioned already before, um, is that I've been working out with Matt Grant. Uh, where is Matty? Somewhere. Anyway, um, there he is over there. Uh, he's just putting his head down right now. We also work out with a guy called Mark Roberts. Uh, you may have heard of Mark. Uh, he's the other pastor here. Uh, but only on occasion, because uh, if I'm honest with you, Mark, a bit of tongue-in-cheek here, is the master of making up excuses. Um, so, like, I've been, I've been working at Matt for a few months, and I think I've worked at Mark a few times, and some of the excuses we get from Mark is, oh, I, I can't work out this week, I'm, I'm just too busy. Or he says to us, oh, I can't work out this week, I just, you know, I can't get up at 7 a.m. in the morning, that's too early. Or he says to us, oh, I can't work out this week, my, my knee is sore. Or I can't work out this week, I just had surgery. Um, you know, I, I can't work out on my upper body, because then I'll be out of proportion to my lower body. You know, and even this week, he's like, I can't work out this week, my wife's having a baby. And like, on and on and on we can go, man. It's just so many excuses. Now, so I'm clear, right? And, and Maddie knows this. When it's leg day, I am worse than Mark. Like, I've got a thousand and one excuses, right? And I think the reality is, is that all of us are masters of making excuses. You know, whenever God puts something on our heart to do something risky, our instinct is to avoid our instinct is to talk our way out of things. The proclivity of our heart is to be passive. It's to make excuses so that we don't have to take bold steps of faith and obedience to God. When He puts an opportunity before us to be faithful to Him, we say, God, are you crazy? And we say things like, I can't do that. I'm not capable. I can't do that. I'm not smart enough. I'm not gifted enough. I don't know enough of the Bible. I don't have the time. I'm too busy. Just think of any excuses. I can't because of this. In particular, to be quite direct in our context here at 6pm Church, the most common excuse I hear begins with the words, I've just. Let me give you a few examples. I've just moved here, so I I can't serve God. I've just started university, so I I, I can't serve God. I'm sorry. I've just started work, so I, I can't actually help out. I'm sorry. I've just gotten married, so I'm sorry I can't really help out in, in church or what God wants me to do. I've just got a promotion at work, so sorry I can't really do anything. I've just had a baby, can't really do anything. I've just had another baby, I can't really do anything. I've been promoted in work. I've, like, I can go on and on and on. And yet, I reckon that probably hits a sore point, because I reckon we've all thought of that excuse at some point in time. You see, Barak was thinking, I can't do this. 
He's thinking, you know, Deborah, you should do this. You're the prophet, you know, you, know, you have the words from God. He wanted to avoid responsibility. He wanted to sit on the sidelines and have his hand held. He was unwilling to take a risk because he forgot that God was in the equation. He forgot about God's power, God's promises, and God's plan. This week, uh, I played poker. I haven't played in a long time. And uh, uh, I don't know if you know this, but let me explain a little bit about poker. In poker, you get given these chips at the beginning, and then you uh, bet in the game to try and win the game. Now, the thing about poker is this, is if you want to, you can actually pretty much play the whole game without actually playing the game at all. You won't win, but you don't lose so badly. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, what you can do is that whenever it's uh, your turn, and if you don't have one of the blinds, which is like a compulsory bet, then you can just fold without having to put any money in. And so you can watch the whole entire game while other people take big risks and, and play bets and different things until it gets to a certain point where the game eats you up and where the blinds become too big because they get doubled every 10 minutes or however long it is, and before long you have no chips and you've just watched the whole game. And the thing about poker is this, is that your heart is tempted always to not risk, not take any risks, to not see what's going to happen. And church, can I be honest with you that the Christian life can be similar to that? God gives us all these resources and we can be tempted to just keep on folding, play a part of the game, but not play the whole game. When Christ calls us to go all in, to trust in Him and His promises, to, to trust that He's the greatest gift in life and that you know, we can risk it all to follow Him. To not sit on the sidelines and have lukewarm faith, which is just half-hearted obedience. Church, lesson one is that following God requires radical faith. Lesson two, we are masters of making excuses. And lesson three, those who sit out, miss out. Those who sit out, miss out. After Barak hesitates, Deborah says to Barak, Okay, I'll go with you, but the honor won't go to you, but will go to a woman. In other words, you want, if you want to sit out here, you're going to miss out on the honor. Later on in chapter 5, you know, that song I was mentioning to you as well, uh, it talks about the six tribes that went into battle with Barak and it praises them, but then it doesn't really talk about the other six tribes that ignored Barak's call. And matter of fact, it actually curses one of them for sitting out. And I think the lesson we can learn from that is that those who sit out when it comes to God's plan and God's mission miss out. And I think it's the same for us too. You see, I think one of the most exciting things about being a Christian is being a vessel whom God uses to change people's lives. It's such a huge joy. And so, look, to be, to be blunt with you, if you're here today and you're a bored Christian and you haven't taken that radical step of faith to go, all right, God, I'm here, I want to serve you, can I say it's probably your fault? Because God wants to use you. God wants to equip you. He wants to put you on His mission and to love His people. But if you have a risk avoidance, lukewarm sort of faith then you're probably going to be bored and it's probably going to lead to even worse things than that. John um, Ortberg has this quote, which I found this week, which I found was quite helpful, which I want to read out to you, about what happens when you have this risk avoidance, lukewarm type of faith. He says, it leads to sinful patterns of behavior that never get confronted or changed, abilities and gifts that have never gotten uh, cultivated and deployed, until weeks becomes months, and months turn into years, and one day you're looking back on your life of deep, intimate, gut-wrenching, honest conversations you never had, great bold prayers you never prayed, exhilarating risks you never took, sacrificial gifts you never offered, lives you never touched, and you're sitting in a recliner with a shriveled soul and forgotten dreams, and you realize that there's a world of desperate need, and a great God calling you to be part of something bigger than yourself. 
You see the person you could have been, become, but you did not. Church, I want to make this clear. I'm saying this to me as much as to you, so don't hear me preaching just at you. Your passivity comes at a cost. Your lack of decisions will come at a cost when it comes to following Christ. In particular, I want you to remember this, that Christ didn't say to people, hey, come watch me. He said, come follow me. Get in the game. Three lessons we learnt from the first ten verses. Let's keep on reading and let's look at this story and learn a few more lessons. And let's, let's look at verse 10 in particular. It says this. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Nephtali, the two of the tribes, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went with him. You know, they're probably like, what's she's doing here? And he's like, never mind. Verse 11, now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites and he pitched a tent by the great tree near Kadesh. And it seems a bit like a random detail, but we'll come back to this. Verse 12, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of uh, Abinoma, I can't say that word, had gone out from Mount Tab- Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and 900 chariots fitted with iron. And then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? It's time now, right, Barak? Let's get in the game. And so Barak went down from the mountain with 10,000 men following him. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and his chariots and their army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. So let me explain what's going on here, okay? God commanded his people to go up this mountain. And so as they go up this mountain, Sisera and his troops can see the Israelites and then they can get tempted or baited to all of a sudden bring all their troops and their chariots across the plains and across this river of Kishon, which obviously is dry season. And so they're thinking there's no way or rain will be fine, but not when God's involved. You see, what we're told in chapter 5 is that God sends rain so that these chariots of iron, these tanks become useless. And then at Deborah's command, Barak is told to go down the mountain and to go attack this army. And let me be clear here, this is still a step of faith from Barak's side. And that's what he does. And his army defeats the Canaanite army. But Sisera escapes Barak's grass. He runs away and on his journey back home, he comes across the tent of a family who was an ally to his people. And let's have a look at what happens. Verse 18. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. And so he entered the tent and she covered him up with a blanket. He said, I'm thirsty. Please give me some water. But because she wants to show some hospitality, she gives him some milk instead. And then she covers him up. He says, Stand in the doorway of the tent. And if someone comes by and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. You see, what's going on here is that Sisera thinks he's safe. He thinks, sweet, I'm in a tent of an ally. There's no way that this powerful God and this army of Barak can come hurt me. And in particular, there's a woman here. I can trust her. Like, she's a woman. What could she possibly do? Everything would be fine. You see, just like the fat king was arrogant in the presence of Ehud, so this commander is arrogant and thinks women can't do anything. But then Jael, Heber's wife, picks up a tent peg and a hammer, and while he's fast asleep, she drives a peg through his temple into the ground. And then she gets out, walks outside, and goes, nailed it. (laughs) That's not there, but anyway. (laughs) Great story. Bit vicious, but great story. 
What are some other lessons? Lesson four, come up on the screen. God wants his people to get in the game. God wants his people to get in the game. You see, I think a big application from this passage is that God wants his people to get involved, to serve like Jesus served. How, remember how Christ came to serve and not to be served, to, to die as a ransom for many? When it comes to following Jesus and not watching him, then it involves us getting involved in the game as well and seeking to be on God's mission and to serve God's people. When it comes to the church, when it comes to the mission of God, I think too often people think that the church is like a bus, all right? And then there's Pastor Rod and Pastor Joel and Mark, who's not here. He's got a, he actually did have a baby, so he's a little bit um, excuse. Now we're at the top of the bus and we're driving the bus, right? And we're just, you know, taking, we're honking the horn, we're setting the direction. And you guys at the back are giving us feedback. You're like, yeah, great job. Like that, no, don't go that way. This, this way is better. And what you think is that your main role is just not to fight, and just make sure you love each other, right? But we can think of the church like a bus, when the reality is, is the church is more like a rowboat. All of us have responsibility. All of us are called to pick up an oar and row. All of us have a part to play in God's mission, that all of us have been commanded to fulfill the great commission and the great command, that all of us are equipped by God's Spirit to take responsibility and to move the mission of God forward. You see, I want you to really understand this. Every single person in this room who calls Jesus their Lord, that God equips you, that He he equips the Chinese to the Anglo-Saxon, that He equips the university worker, I mean the university student to the worker, that He equips the teenager to the 80-year-old to serve God and be on mission and to love His church, to make Him mature disciples of Christ. And so can I encourage everyone here to get in the game? In particular, can I encourage you to serve? You know, can I, can I remind you that like Barak and Deborah had a battle in an enemy, so we have a battle in an enemy. We have an enemy in Satan and a battle of the lost souls of Wollongong. There is work to be done. And so can I encourage you, be it formally and informally, to serve God's people and be on His mission. To talk to Beck Kime, who's down the front, and put up a hand in a second, if you want to get involved in serving some sort of way in our church. I want to encourage servants here who serve like Jesus. But on top of that, I also want to encourage leaders. I want to encourage people who don't only just do tasks, but also take up responsibility. I want the men to learn from Barak and his mistakes. And I want the women to be like Deborah and Jael. You see, I love to create a culture here of leaders, both men and women, who are using the gifts of God they have and taking bold steps forward for the mission of God, for the sake of our church as well as their joy. Because look, can I be honest? Our church, like all churches, struggles to find leaders. We struggle to find leaders. We struggle to find mature followers of Jesus who are willing to put up their hand and say, yep, I'll take responsibility. Yep, I'll use the gifts I have to bring glory to God, to to give me a bigger load, to push me out of my comfort zone. Like, don't be fooled. There's a lot of people in the room who maybe feel like, oh, they don't need leaders. I don't need people to take responsibility. I can sit back on my comfortable chair. The reality is we lack people who are willing to serve God and serve the church because they're so busy outside of it. And so look, if you're keen for a challenge, if if you're keen to get in the game and take responsibility, can I encourage you? Come up to me, shout me a coffee and say, Joel, what can I do? Challenge for any of you here. Lesson five, God wants us to get in the game. Sorry, that's lesson four. Let's get into lesson five. Because maybe some of you think, but Joel, I don't know if I'm capable. 
And that leads us to lesson five, which is this. That God cares more about availability more than ability. That God cares about availability more than ability. You see, in this story, let me, let me just ask a few simple questions. Who was most qualified to deliver the Israelites? Barak, the commander, or Jael, the tent wife? Who was most able? Barak. Who was available? Jael. You see, both of them faced the same decision. They said whether or not they would defeat this evil commander. And who took responsibility? If you were to compare the two, if you were to have a lineup of the two, if you were to do a job interview process of the two, right? Barak, the commander, his interview, his resume would have been so much more impressive than Jael, the tent wife, who knew how to put a peg into the ground. But who's God use? The able or the available? The qualified or the brave? So like the rest of Israel, Barak had half-hearted obedience. He tried to abdicate his responsibility. He tried to avoid risks. Where Jael, this tent wife, showed no hesitation. She took on the risk. She took on the responsibility. Like, think about this, right? It's like she had one shot at that hit. If she missed, she was gone. She didn't ask for permission. She didn't ask her husband. She saw what needed to be done and got it done. You see, Barak, he should have delivered Israel. But Jael did. And she did it because she was available. And that's what God cared about. And he cares about the same for us. You see, he actually wants us to realize that we're actually not that capable. And actually that we are weak jars of clay that instead should come to God and say, I'm here. How can, how can I help? God cares about availability more than ability. The final lesson is this, is that God's power is demonstrated through weakness. That God's power is demonstrated through weakness. I hope you see this throughout the Bible. It's a pretty clear pattern that God doesn't choose the most brilliant, most capable people to achieve His purposes. He, he chooses actually people who are actually imperfect, warts and all, character flaws and all, bad hospitality practices and all, to accomplish His perfect plan. He chooses the lowly tent wives of society to bring about deliverance. He can use anyone and everyone in this room for his purposes and for his mission. He can even use people who have messed up in the past, like Barak. Barak, who hesitates and lacks faith, who is passive, but then he learns his lesson and takes a step of faith and he goes when he's called to. See, what I love about God is he can work through the messiness of life, is that he can work through imperfect people to bring about his perfect plan. You know, he, he can work through the unexpected heroes to bring about unexpected deliverance. You see this time and time again in the book of Judges. But then ultimately, you see it through Christ Jesus, don't you? You see someone who in many ways was born in a boring town. Someone who had basically no qualifications. There was nothing really that special about him. Nothing about Jesus that would make us go, whoa, he's going to save the world. And yet God worked through Jesus, the unexpected hero, to save in the most unexpected way. You see, in human standards, the cross is weakness. In human standards, people would have looked at Jael and thought there's no way that a tent wife could kill a general. And the same thing happens with the cross. People go, there's no way that this carpenter 2,000 years ago defeated Satan's sin and death. And yet what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 is this. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God's power is demonstrated through weakness. And so can I encourage you to get in the game? And if you're like, I don't know if he can use me, he can, he wants to. As a matter of fact, he wants to use the weak like you and me. For the last few months, uh, I've been building a retaining wall at my house. Uh, and whenever I build the retaining wall and I go outside, my two boys uh, come out and they want to help. 
right? They put on their boots and they want to come help me build the wall themselves. Uh, but if I'm honest with you, they more uh, are a hindrance than a help. Uh, like, for example, Isaac, like, without fail, never has pants on. So I've always got to, like, chase him around in the backyard, put his pants on. And then I, uh, Eli, he's great. He grabs the wheelbarrow, but without fail, he usually tips it over so that all my nails and screws go everywhere, my tools go everywhere. And then on top of that, they usually get the hammer or the mattock or, like, a saw, and they just, like, go at the pieces of wood that I'm using to build the retaining wall, and they just put scratches and dents in them. And so I'm like, oh, it's going to look terrible. And now as I'm coming towards the end... As most of the wall is built, and I see those scratches, I see those dents, I see those nails scattered throughout the ground, I'm not angry, but instead I'm reminded of how cool is it that my boys got to help me build this wall. You know, they've got these memories of that, yeah, we helped Dad. Like, like church, can I point this out to you? God doesn't need you. Like, He really doesn't. He, he, can, he can save the world, He can fulfill His plan all by Himself. He doesn't need you. You're not that special, Okay, you're not. I'm not that special. God doesn't need us. But He wants us to get involved in His plan. He wants us to get involved in His mission and to try and make Him mature disciples because He knows that's what brings us joy. He knows that's what matures us. He knows that we want to make our Father proud. And so He gives us this opportunity so that one day He can say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Church, for those of you here, and there are many, right? There are many of you here who don't just watch Jesus but follow Him, who sacrificed your life for this church and for God's mission. Can I encourage you to keep on doing that? That God's proud of you, that we're proud of you, that we're thankful for you, that we want to celebrate just like we did with Amy tonight, that we serve one another and be like Christ. But for those of you who are here tonight and you're watching Jesus, you're not in the game. Can I encourage you to follow Him? Can I encourage you to take a radical step of faith, to stop making excuses, to get in the game, to know that those who sit out miss out, to know that God just wants you to be available and not necessarily capable, and that God will work through your weaknesses to bring Him glory. How about I pray? Father, we thank you so much for the joy it is to be able to serve you. We know that you don't need us. We know that we are weak and we need you. And so, Father, I pray that you help us as a church to realize that we're more like a rowboat than a bus. Lord, help us to understand as well that you work through our weaknesses, that you work through our sin, and that through that, you want to make the gospel so evident to us. And so, Father, I pray that you help us to not make excuses. But instead, Lord, you may give us wisdom and that you may give us clarity as how we can serve you and love your people, how we can both serve formally and informally and take responsibility. And so, Lord, help us to learn from Barak's mistakes and to have faith in your power rather than to hesitate. And help us, Lord, to learn from Deborah and from JL and how they did not hesitate but had radical faith in you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.